0: Please note, this episode involves discussion of child rape and molestation. If that's something that is not for you, then just sit this one out and come back next week. Listener discretion is advised. On March 1st, 1980, two boys walked into a police station in Ukiah, California, and told the police that the smallest boy was a victim of a kidnapping while the older boy was turning around to walk away the officer asked him his name and he said i know my first name is steven welcome back donuts welcome to another episode of fried dough your weekly fix of true crime i'm your host gina and in today's episode, we will be exploring the heartbreaking story of Steven Stainer, a young boy who was kidnapped and held captive for seven years by a shitbag named Kenneth Parnell. Also, the evidence and explore the psychological impact of his ordeal. I will also take a closer look at the people involved, from the kidnappers to the law enforcement officials, and even Stephen's own family. And as always, I want to remind listeners that the stories that I cover on this podcast may be difficult to hear. However, it is very important to shine a light on these cases and remember the victims who were affected. This is Fried Doe, and this is the story of Stephen Stainer. Stephen Gregory Stainer, born April 18th, 1965, to Mary Kay and father Delbert Stainer. He was the third of five children, Carrie, Cindy, Stephen, Jody, and Corey. Stephen loved following his father around while he did farm work. It was as if they were joined at the hip. They always went fishing, and when Stephen wasn't fishing with his father, he was sitting on his lap watching TV. While the others were outside playing with each other, Stephen tried to stay within feet of his father. Except one time on December 1st, 1972, Stephen was outside playing in the driveway and decided to write his name on the garage. k His mother did not like this, so she told Dale, and he got in trouble, and even a whooping for that, but she expressed aggravation when she looked out there, and she noticed that Dale never told Stephen to wash it off. This came to be a reminder of Stephen, because in a few days, he would get kidnapped. So Kenneth Parnell. Kenneth Parnell was born Kenneth Eugene Parnell. September 26, 1931, in Alamo, Texas, to Mother Mary Olive and Father Cecil Frederick. He was born during the Great Depression. He lived with his mother and father, his half-sister and half-brother, from Mary's earlier marriage. In 1937, Parnell was six years old, and this is the year that his father Cecil left the family, and it really affected him. Shortly after his father left, he pulled out four of his own teeth with a pair of pliers. At age eight, he tried shining a light in his eyes, hoping that he would go blind. And at age 12, he jumped off of a roof into some lumber and nails and was hoping that he would die. In 1944, Parnell's mother opened up a boarding home in Bakersfield, California. So in the spring of 1945, Parnell was 13 years old. One of his mother's boarders befriended him knowing he didn't have a father. After establishing trust with Parnell, he, the boarder, cohorts Parnell to perform a fellatio on him. Soon after the molestation, he set fire to a pasture and was arrested for it and taken to Bakersfield juvenile detention home. And he spent seven months there. So at this time, Parnell was in and out of the juvenile detention home. At age 14, he was arrested and sent back for stealing a vehicle. He spent a year and a half there. At age 16, he was arrested for public homosexual acts. That's what it says in the legal records. And then he tried drinking cleaning fluid. So they sent him to to a mental institution for 90 days but he escaped. He stole another car and was arrested and was sent back. But this time they kept an eye on him until he was released at age 17. In 1949, after his release, he met and married a lady named Patsy Joe Dorton, but he was still attracted to young boys. So on March 20th, 1951, he approached three nine-year-old boys with a police badge he was able to talk one to go with him, Bobby Green. He drove him to a remote location, told Bobby to get out of the car and they both walked up a hill together and sat down. That's when Parnell told Bobby Green what he was going to do to him. Then he asked Bobby, "Have you had that done to him before?" Bobby answered, "No." Then this piece of human waste committed the act. Afterwards, he said he contemplated strangling Bobby. However, he decided otherwise and took Bobby back to where he picked him up at and drove off like nothing happened. Parnell was 19 years old at this time. So March 26, 1951, Bobby's father signed a complaint against Parnell for three felonies he committed on Bobby. Child stealing, crime against nature that's the anal sodomize on the boy and the act of copulating the sexual organ to wit the penis of kenneth eugene parnell with the mouth of bobby green april 10th 1951 he pled guilty to a lesser charge and was examined and diagnosed by three doctors dr lewis r nash May 1st, 1951, he spent two hours with him. Dr. Joseph E. Brackley, May 4th, 1951, he also spent two hours with him. And Dr. Richard Lowensburg, he saw him in 1945 and May 5th, 1951, and two hours as well. He was diagnosed as a sexual psychopath without psychosis. He was again committed to a Norwalk State Hospital for an indeterminate period of time. During this time, Parnell escaped three times. And the last time, he was free for three months and he was caught in Albuquerque, Mexico. They sent him back to San Quentin. Early 1957, his wife Patsy divorced his ass. They haven't lived together since 1951 and he never saw his daughter so on august 8, 1957, he met and married a woman named Emma Schaefer. She gave birth to his second daughter, he didn't even know her name. During this time, he was drifting from one menial job to another until 1960 when he went to Utah and started robbing gas stations and was caught and charged with grand larceny and Armed robbery. He was jailed in Salt Lake City, Utah. The district judge, Stuart Johansson, sentenced him to five years to life for robbery and 10 years for the grand larceny. At this time, his second wife, Emma, divorced his ass as well. While in jail, he got his GED and took some college courses like accounting. So in September 1967, he was released from prison with the proviso that he never returned to Utah. In 1968, he got married again, but there's no evidence to this. He himself never said to whom, but he said it only lasted less than a year. So May 1st, 1972, after lying all on his application about his past mental health stays and his prison time, he got a job at the Yosemite National Park as a third shift auditor. So now we're going to talk about his accomplice, Irvin Edward Murph, but we're going to call him Murph today. A cook named Gillespie noted that Murph was a good and willing worker who did much more than he was required or expected to, and that he was generous and always buying small gifts for his friends and coworkers. Charles Hudspeth was a second cook at Yosemite Lodge and described Murph as a person who liked people and wanted people to like him in return. He said Murph was a lonesome type who was easily influenced by others and that there was practically nothing that Murph wouldn't do for his friends. Another employee of Yosemite Lodge Bar Restaurant, Ralph Lurkin, Described Murph as the kind of person that if you needed $25 and he only had $20, he would give you the $20 and go borrow another $5 from someone else to give to you. According to hotel storeroom clerk Russell White, he said that a few years earlier, a fellow employee had stolen Murph's brand new shoes. And when Murph found out that the man who had stolen the shoes was badly in need of a pair, Murph let him keep the shoes. Russell added that Murphy had originally planned to stay in Yosemite only a short period of time, but he had stayed there as long as he had because it was the, one of the few times in Murphy's life that he had friends. Finally, Murphy's roommate of many years, Myron Buzz Calismo, described Murph as a fantastic person who cannot do enough for another person. He also stated that a person with a strong personality could convince Murph to do anything just on the basis of friendship and that he was easily misled. So he believed Parnell when Parnell told Murphy he was studying to be a minister and he just wanted to raise a child in a religious type home. Murph did not know Parnell was a convicted felon. So Murph was a child of abuse. He said that he remembered his mother being abusive to all 10 of her children. Murph was three years old when his mother abandoned the family and his father had to pick up the slack and take care of all 10 children while working at an ice cream factory. At age 16, Murph dropped out of school and left Iowa for California he also jumped from job to job. So in 1965, he joined Job Corps and worked in the kitchen. He got into an argument with a black guy and then started using racial slurs towards him and was soon terminated. In 1972, he was hired on the spot at Yosemite National Park. Soon after that, he and Parnell met. During that time, Parnell was telling him that he was studying to be a minister and that he wanted a son to raise up in a religious home. Murph would ask him, well, why don't you adopt a child? He told Murph that he didn't want to adopt a child for whatever reason he made up lies, we all know this. Parnell told Murph that he wanted him to help him pick one up off the street. Murph thought about this Murph knew that that sounded like kidnapping, but he wanted Parnell to be his friend. So he started suggesting that Parnell get married and have a son. But when he would tell Parnell that, he would ignore it, and Parnell would continue about what he was saying about kidnapping. It came to a point where Parnell talked so much about it that Murph would make up excuses on why he couldn't help him so on the morning of december 4th 1972 when he was awakened by a knock on his cabin door he jumped up he opened the door and saw parnell standing there parnell simply said let's go to merced Murph said, okay because he needed a ride to merced mall to buy his christmas gifts and while they were there parnell bought some gospel tracts During the riot, all Parnell talked about was unprivileged children and how he wanted a son. And he also was talking about how lonely he was. So Parnell asked Murph to help him to kidnap a young boy so he, Parnell, could raise him in a religious type deal of a home. Parnell gave him the tracks and asked him if he would pass them out. And Murph said, yeah. Parnell told him he knew the perfect location to pass them out at and he drove him to the Yosemite Parkway Road near Charles White Elementary School and told Murph to get out and hand them to the children walking home from school alone. So acting under the instructions of Parnell, Murph was passing out gospel tracts to the children. Murph was almost out when he saw seven-year-old Stephen Stainer and asked him if his mother would be willing to donate anything from the church. And Stephen said, yeah. Then Murph asked Stephen, where did he live? And if he could show him and told Stephen, he can take him home all under the rules of working for the church. So Murph gave Parnell the signal and a white Buick pulled up. Stephen got into the car with Murph. Back to the Yosemite National Park Employees Lodge under the rules, rules, that he was going to call his parents to see if he can spend the night. So when all three got back to Yosemite National Park Lodge, Parnell told Murph to wait in the car while him and Stephen went up to his room. And he did. Once in a room, Parnell had a pile of toys that he purchased at a secondhand store on the floor. And he told Stephen that he can pick out four toys for himself. But Stephen looked at all of the toys, and he instantly started thinking about his brothers and sisters and started asking if he can grab some toys for his brothers and his sisters. This angered Parnell, and he just simply said, no, pick out four toys for yourself, no one else. So after Stephen picked out the four toys, Parnell went back to the car to go and get Murph. And before they left out, got out the car, Parnell told Murph that if he was to say anything to anyone about what just happened, that Murph would be in just as much trouble as Parnell. Parnell told Murph that if he was to say anything, that Murph would lose everything just as much as Parnell would. Parnell also told him that he would tell them that he kidnapped the boy and he didn't have anything to do with it. So basically he was just messing with this less than average thinking individual. So both of them went back up to the room, and once they were in the room, Parnell told Murph to go down and get something to eat for all three of them. So they fed Stephen that night. After Stephen ate, Parnell told Stephen to go and take a shower. Stephen went in and went and took a shower. And when Stephen came out, he had a towel wrapped around him. Parnell told him to take the towel off of him and to get into bed with him. I'm not going to get too graphic with this, guys, but it is just, that is just hard to say. (sighs) Okay. Stephen dropped the towel and got into bed with Parnell. And that night, Parnell molested Stephen and he molested him every night for the next two weeks until December 17th, 1972. So the day of December 17, 1972, Parnell left, Parnell left Stephen with Murph to babysit back at the lodge in his room and went to go visit his mother's house. And when he was leaving his mother's house, she gave him a six week old puppy that her dog just had. Parnell took the puppy And he was going back to Stephen and Murph. But before he got back on the highway, he stopped at a gas station and saw one of Stephen's missing posters. He mentally got Stephen's information off the poster his middle name, his birthday, everything. So when he got back to the room, he had the puppy and gave it to Stephen. While Stephen was happy and playing with the puppy, he concocted a story. And told Stephen and Murph that he was just left the courts and they granted custody of Stephen to Parnell. So Parnell told Stephen that his parents did not want Stephen anymore. Stephen protested and said that his parents needed him to help them with his two little sisters. But Parnell told Stephen that they couldn't afford him anymore and now. His name is Dennis Gregory Parnell. He just changed his name, but we're gonna still address him as Steven. He changed his name and kept his middle name and told Stephen to call him dad. Steven said he went numb when he heard this, but never once he stopped thinking about his family. So that night, December 17th, 1972, As Stephen cried for his family and begged to go home, Parnell raped Stephen. That was the 13th day of his captivity. Parnell quit his job and moved 30 minutes away to Kathy's Valley, within 100 feet from Stephen's grandfather. Stephen had never been to his grandfather's house, so Stephen did not know, nor did his grandfather know. Parnell enrolled Stephen in various schools over the next several years, passing himself off as Stephen's father. They constantly moved around California living in different locations such as Santa Rosa, Comanche, California. One time after Parnell raped Stephen in 1973, Parnell fell asleep. Eight-year-old Stephen got up got dressed and walked out of the home he walked a ways up the street trying to get back home to his family but he got scared and he got lost and he ended up going back to Parnell oh my god and that is just the saddest thing Parnell let Stephen drink and smoke at a very young age and do whatever he wanted Parnell also switched jobs often and he would leave Stephen unguarded as he went to work. Stephen could use this time to get help, but he just did not know how. For a period of 18 months, a woman named Barbara Mathis moved with Parnell and Stephen. Barbara and Parnell raped Stephen on nine different occasions at the age of nine years old. In 1975, under Parnell's instructions, Barbara tried to unsuccessfully lure a boy who was in the Santa Rosa Boys' Choir with Stephen, into Parnell's car. But it's okay to to molest this child. But you don't know he's kidnapped. Okay, let's move on. As Stephen approached puberty, Parnell started looking for a younger child to kidnap. He tried to use Stephen for the kidnapping, but every time it was unsuccessful. Later, Stephen said he did that on purpose. Thinking Stephen was an incompetent criminal, Parnell talked one of Stephen's teenage friends, a local boy named Randall Sean Porman, into being an accomplice, promising him drugs and cash. He paid him upfront $50. So on February 14, 1980, Parnell and Porman pulled up and saw Timmy walking alone. Poorman tried to get him into the car, but Timmy attempted to run. But Poorman chased after him, shoved him against a chain-link fence. Timmy grabbed onto that fence and held on and was screaming, but Poorman forced him to loosen his grip and then drug the boy, kicking and screaming, into the car. So they kidnapped Timmy James White born November 1st, 1974. Because Timmy was crying and was scared and wanted to go home, Stephen felt empathy for him because he remembered how he felt on his first nights and beyond. Stephen and Timmy started talking and Stephen told Timmy that he also was abducted when he was Timmy's age. And Timmy even got more scared. He could not imagine being with Parnell for as long as Stephen was. Stephen had no way of knowing that Parnell was planning on killing him and burying his body in a ditch that he and a teenage accomplice already dug. By the Garcia River, this river flows right into the Pacific Ocean. While Stephen and Timmy continued to talk, Stephen realized that he was going to be sexually molested just as he was. So Stephen started carrying a knife in his boot. That night, Stephen decided to return the boy to his parents. So on March 1st, 1980, the two boys took off into the night, but not without Stephen promising Queenie, his dog, that he'll return for her. This will be the last time out of many tries. The first few times Parnell didn't go to work, Then it was raining and Timmy would start complaining. He would get cold, hungry, and wanted to go back. But tonight was clear and Stephen had a plan. Instead of walking, Stephen decided to carry Timmy on his back, piggyback style. They were able to hitchhike a ride with someone, but Stephen made sure he didn't tell them too much. He didn't want to get caught before they got to their destination. On their journey, he actually passed the hotel where Parnell worked, but fortunately, they didn't see him, nor did he see them. So they hitchhiked all the way to Ukiah from Anderson County, Kathy, California, 40 miles or 63 kilometers. Timmy told Stephen that he wanted to go to his babysitter's house named Diane Crawford. Her house was just around the corner. Timmy was on his way there. So Stephen helped Timmy find it. Stephen wanted to take Timmy home, but after a a while, they wasn't able to find it. Stephen was able to talk Timmy into going to the police station. So Timmy agreed. Once they got to the police station in Ukiah, California, Stephen told Timmy to go up to the door and pull it and they'll make sure that you get home. So Timmy walked up to the door of the police station. He got to the door and he looked back at Stephen. He opened the door a little bit. Timmy started crying, let the door go, and ran back and hugged Stephen. Inside, Officer Bob Warner saw all of this go on. So he got up and went to the door and he saw everything that just went on, but in fear that the boys would run away if he approached them, he radioed to a patrolman in the area and within two minutes, Officer Russell Voorhees pulled up in his cruiser. He stepped out and approached the two boys and asked them, what's the little boy's name? Stephen answered, Timmy White. Knowing the name looked sound familiar, he looked at the smaller boy and he asked him again, what's your name? And Timmy answered, Timmy White. He recognized the name of the five-year-old boy who was missing. So while Stephen was turning away to walk away to go back home, yes, he was going back to Parnell's house. The officer asked Stephen what was his name, and Stephen answered, I know my first name is Stephen. Stephen's written statement given during the early hours of March 2, 1980 in Ukiah, California, police station, It reads, I know my first name is Stephen. I'm 14 years old. I don't know my birthday, but I use April 18th, 1965. I know my first name is Stephen. I'm pretty sure my last name is Stainer. And if I have a middle name, I do not know it. So on March 2nd, 1980, Parnell was arrested for suspicion of abduction of two boys. When police checked into Parnell's history, they found the previous conviction in 1951. Stephen went back later that day, as promised, to get Queenie his dog. Stephen was worried about the family. He was worried if they forgotten about him and if they still loved him. Stephen didn't know that the last whooping that he got for writing his name on the garage, they never painted over that. And also, they never moved out of that house simply because They didn't want Stevie to return, and they wasn't there. Kay said that it felt like that they were moving on without him, so they never moved out of that house. Although Stephen was a resident in that county for four years, the DA still didn't go after Parnell for those crimes done to him. Joseph Allen really wasn't doing his job because he delegated instructions to Richard Dick Finn the former Mendocino County Chief Criminal DA, from the golf course or the bar across the street from the Mendocino County Courthouse. Stephen, Tim, Poorman, and Murphy was called to testify against Parnell. Parnell was tried and convicted of kidnapping Timmy and Stephen in two separate trials. After two hours, they found him guilty of kidnapping in the second degree. Two months later, since Parnell had two prior felony convictions and had served prison time for both, California law precludes the possibility of probation. Therefore, Parnell was sentenced to seven years total, the max prison time allowed for second-degree kidnapping. He received one year and eight months for Stevens' case and he received five years for Timmy's kidnapping. Parnell's court appointment defender, John Ellery, was molested as a boy, and he said he was sickened by the fact that they called him to defend Parnell. However, he said he defended Parnell to the best of his ability and was very professional. Needless to say, they didn't get along. Parnell wasn't charged with the numerous sexual assaults he did on Stephen because most of them was out of the jurisdiction of Merced County, California, along with they were out of statute of limitation. Murph and Sean Porman both were convicted of lesser charges. Both claimed they didn't know anything about the sexual assault. Murph received 10 years in total. Five years for the kidnapping and the other five, I didn't write it down, sorry, 10 years in total, they both claimed they didn't know nothing about the sexual assault. Barbara Mathis never was arrested. What the fuck? But she was promised a, hun- a couple of hundred dollars by a news crew for a face-to-face story with Steven. She actually told them that she was his mother and had no idea that he was kidnapped. She told him that he called her mom. So they showed up at Stephen's home, and Kay, Stephen's real mother, opened the door and saw that it was her there, and she was smiling with the whole news crew behind her. Kay slammed the door in her face. She should have got her ass whooped that day. I mean, with that being said, Barbara got off kind of simple because women back then, they viewed violence as uncivilized and unladylike. But let me say this, I would have been the most uncivilized woman in America that day. April 5th, 1987, Kenneth Eugene Parnell completed his strictly supervised parole and became a free man. He was free to drop out of sight, to travel wherever, whenever, please, and to associate with anyone he chose, even little boys. The aftermath of Stephen's kidnapping prompted California lawmakers to change the state laws to allow consecutive prison terms in similar abduction cases. After returning home, Stephen had trouble adjusting. In an interview with Newsweek, Stephen said, I returned home a grown man. And yet my parents saw me as a seven year old boy. After they're trying to teach me the fundamentals all over again, it got better. But why doesn't my father hug me anymore? Everything has changed. Sometimes I blame myself. I don't know sometimes if I should have come home or would it have been better off if I didn't. Stephen went through counseling briefly. He refused to disclose all the details of the sexual abuse he endured, and I don't blame him. He also mentioned that he wanted to go see Parnell to his parents, but they ignored him. He wanted to visit him and thank him for keeping him alive. At age 18, Stephen received a $15,000 reward for returning Timmy safely. He also received $40,000. On his movie rights. With the money, Stephen bought three cars within the same year he wrecked two. He bought a motorcycle and he also loaned his father $2,000 for his sister's wedding. He also partied and had fun with his friends. In 1985, Stephen married 19 year old Jody Edmondson and had two children daughter Ashley and son, Stephen Gregory Steiner. He also worked with child abduction groups and spoke to children about personal safety and gave interviews about his kidnapping. In 1989, the movie was being made, and at the same time, Stephen was working at a pizza hut in Merced, California. He was granted a leave of absence to serve as an advisory for the filming and actually appeared in the movie. He was one of the officers who reunited movie Stephen Corky Neiman with his on-screen parent. It broadcasted in May the same year, 1989. In August 1990, it was retelecasted, and in 1991, it had been shown in over three dozen foreign countries, including Australia, Brazil, Britain, Germany, France, Italy, and Yugoslavia. That was a new record. On september 16, nineteen eighty-nine, Stephen Stainer had a fatal head injury while riding his motorcycle in a hit and run accident. The driver of the car was later identified as immigrant worker Antonio. Liorna, September 15, 1989, someone stole Stephen's helmet. After the eulogy, Stephen's sister, Jody, delivered an emotional goodbye to her brother by saying, you brought a brokenhearted family back together again. Even though he passed into another life, we're still very grateful that he went as Stephen Gregory Steiner, our brother, we will always remember you and will never forget you. But remember, this isn't goodbye. This is until we meet again. Five hundred people attended Stephen's funeral, at which fourteen-year-old Timmy White was one of Stephen's. Ten years after Stephen's death, the city of Merced asked its residents to come up with a new name. For a city park honoring Merced's most honorable citizen, Stephen Stainer. Stephen's parents proposed Stainer Park, and they only did that to try to include themselves. But that was rejected, and the honor was instead given to another Merced resident. They rejected it because Carrie Stainer, Stephen's older brother, confessed and was convicted for killing four women in the National in the Yosemite National Park in 1999, they were scared it was going to be associated with Carrie and not Stephen. In a 2000 interview with Parnell, he was asked about the 1951 crime. Parnell said he kidnapped and molested Bobby Green because his wife was pregnant and that, quote, he had to find another outlet. He was married for 15 years to Patsy Dorton. In 2004, Parnell was 72 years old and was convicted again for trying to persuade his caretaker's sister to get him a young boy. He was offering her $500. Aware of his history, she reported this to the local police. Timmy was summoned to testify. Like Stephen, he gave lectures to children about his experience and dangers of kidnapping, also summoned was a full-grown Sean Porman, who reacted with shock, not having seen Timmy since the 1980 kidnapping. The two spoke briefly. Timmy had forgiven Poorman. Although Stephen was dead at the time, his testimony from Parnell's first trial was read in this trial. In 2005, Timmy became a Los Angeles County Sheriff's department deputy. Parnell was convicted and sentenced to 25 years to life. In a 2007 interview, Stephen's sister said Stephen didn't receive counseling because their father said he didn't need any. She added, he got on with his life, but he was pretty messed up. He was bullied in school for being molested and eventually dropped out. Stephen and his father's relationship remained strained. January 21st, 2008, this hot piece of shit, Parnell, died of natural causes in California Medical Facility in Vacaville, California. He was serving his sentence to 25 years to life. April 1st, 2010, at 35 years old, From pulmonary embolism, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department deputy, Timmy White, died. He left behind his wife, Dina, and two children. August 28, 2010, a statue of Stephen and Timmy was dedicated in the Applegate in Merced, California Park. Residents of Ukiah, Timmy's hometown, carved the statue, showing a teenage Stephen with young Timmy in hand, while escaping their captivity. It's meant to honor Stephen and give family of missing kidnapped children hope that they're still alive. April two thousand thirteen, Dale Stainer died at his home in Winton, California. He was seventy nine years old. In conclusion, Stephen Stainer's story is a powerful and tragic reminder of a devastating impact that children abduction can have on individuals and families. Stephen endured years of physical and emotional abuse at the hands of his abductor, Kenneth Parnell, but his courage and resilience allowed him to escape and eventually reunite with his family. Stephen's story served as a reminder to prioritize child safety and to support and advocate for those who have experienced trauma. Okay, Donuts, let's talk. I really do hope you enjoyed this story, and I do hope that you remember it and pass it along. I wanted to bring this story to you all simply because this was how I was taught how to not talk to strangers. And watching this movie and talking to my mother, it literally stuck with me for my whole life and it was always in the back of my mind. and when I would bring it up to people, no one knew about the story. and I felt that because he was such a hero and because he could have continued this cycle and he didn't, I really felt that his story should be remembered. All heroes don't wear capes. He at least he did have fun with the money the time that he was here, I guess. Oh oh, one more thing. Barbara Mathis reading the book. I know my first name is Stephen by Mike Eccles. I read in there that Barbara Mathis she had children, and guess what? Parnell got to one of her her youngest son. That is really a good book. I will advise y'all to pick it up either on Audible or at the library or even buy it because I'm pretty sure it might be still in print. I don't know. The one that I got actually had to come from Cincinnati's library, so. I don't know. You got to read the book. It's such a good book. All of my resources will be in the show notes. I want to know what did you think about this story? I want to hear what you thought about this episode. I hope you keep listening. Stay safe, stay vigilant, and trust no one. In the next episode of Fried Dough, I will be discussing the disturbing case of Cary Stainer, a hotel handyman who brutally murdered four women in and around Yosemite National Park in 1999. I would dive into the details of Cary's troubled childhood, examine the events that may have contributed to his descent into madness and violent behavior. I would also explore the events leading up to the murders, including the circumstances around Kerry's employment at the hotel and his interaction with his victims. I will also look into the investigation and subsequent trial, providing insight into the inner workings of the criminal justice system and the challenges faced by those seeking to bring such heinous criminals to justice. Overall, Carrie Stainer's episode is a gripping and thought-provoking account of one of the Americans' most notorious serial killers and a reminder of the importance of remaining vigilant and aware of your surroundings.